Hi, my name is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited because on Monday, September 3rd, we're having our first Courageous Conversations event. Now, those who have been rocking with us for a while know that we've done Courageous Conversations in the past, but it's been via Google Hangouts where we take a scholar or pastor trained in a more conservative evangelical space and a scholar and pastor trained in a more mainline progressive space. And I'm so excited because we're moving from these Google Hangouts to an actual event that's going to be phenomenal. Phenomenal. We have 24 scholars and pastors lined up to talk about things like sexuality, the authority of scripture, justice, Paul versus Jesus. It's going to be amazing. Some of the people that we have are Dr. Judy Finchers, Williams, Dr. Jarvis Williams, Dr. Bruce Fields, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Delman Coates, Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. I mean, it is going to be amazing. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, you don't want to miss this event. So I want you to go on Jew3Project.com and register early bird registration is only $25 and that is honestly a steal but we wanted to make it reasonable for you all so meet us in Chicago Illinois on Monday September 3rd it's going to be a phenomenal experience I don't think anything like this has ever been done so join us as we make history now let's get to the Jew 3 Project podcast Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. We are live. Um, Y'all, we are so sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, We were trying to get it where we could all be on Facebook Live at one time, but... um, that was not happening um, like we wanted it to. So uh, here we are on um, Google Hangouts, Old Faithful, what we use all the time. I'm Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the G3 Project. And um, I'm I'm going to be joined by, uh, well, Ali is already here, Akimini is here, uh, Jamar Tisby, Malik, and CJ Rhodes. Um, and we're going to be talking about the hashtag Seminary While Black. Um, and so if you've been seeing this on Twitter, you've been seeing that it's been trending. A lot of talk has been going on around this. And um, it was actually Allie who introduced, you know, what was going on behind this hashtag to me. Um, so I talked to her today and I was like, man, we should do a Google Hangout to just talk about all this going on uh, with this hashtag. And so um, Allie, kind of just give our audience just a little bit about who you are and how the hashtag started. So I am, like she said, my name is Allie Henney. I am an MDiv student at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm online, um, so I do all my studies online, but Fuller, of course, is based in Pasadena, California, and they have campuses in Texas, Arizona, Colorado Springs, and um, Seattle, Washington, or thereabouts. And so the way that this hashtag came about actually was from the result of several meetings that Black students have had with Fuller administration. Really, this has been going on. The seminary, while Black hashtag just started, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, but it came out of a a series of conversations, a series of, of dialogues that Black students at Fuller Theological Seminary have been having with administration dating back. Well, really, I mean, the whole issue has been going on for decades, but this particular um, thrust has been over the past two years. And then within the last three months, we have met 
quarterly with administration black students have. And so I've been part of those meetings as an online student. And there um, is, a, we were starting a black seminarians council. So there are people from representing Fuller or Pasadena, and then a few people from regional campuses also that were present at these meetings with administration. And so as these meetings were going on and we were talking with administration about some of the, the toxic culture at Fuller, we realize that the administration, they are well-intended. Fuller very much presents itself as it wants to be a diverse, it wants to be a multicultural, it wants to be a forerunner in evangelical, everything like that. But they, um, even though they present that, the culture of Fuller, the, the curriculum, everything, it just it is not conducive to that. And so as the students have been meeting with administration, we realized that they weren't hearing us. And so after um, a fairly contentious meeting with administration on Monday, we decided that the black um, students, that the ones who've been present, some of the ones who've been present at these meetings, we decided that we needed to start an online protest. And so there were, I, I'm not the one who originated the hashtag. Um, there were a couple of ladies at on campus who originated in, uh, from Fuller Pasadena who originated that hashtag. And then as an online student, because um, this is this is our finals week, so I just happened, the Lord, we just happened, I happened to be like the first one done with finals. So I just took it on Twitter and ran with the hashtag. So we have um, seminary or uh, seminary while black and then um, toxic fuller and then black exodus. And so the, I, the reason why we're doing this is we're protesting Fuller's toxic culture. And what we mean by that is that Fuller has a pervasive culture where administration has ignored black students' concerns. This is something that has gone on for decades. Um, we have a statement from a student in 1984. So this was the year before I was born. So 34 years ago, a black student talked about how there weren't very many um, ethnic is how they put it, faces on campus. And that's been a theme. There's been um, different students who've said things over over the last 30 odd years that, that we know about, but it's probably even dating back further than that. And every time that this has come up as an issue on campus, the administration more or less, like they've said, hey, yeah, we're, like, we want to do this. We want we want to help you guys. We, we, we want to change our culture. And then nothing has changed. And then also so as a result of that culture, then there's a lack of African-American faculty and staff recruitment. In the last year, in the last 18 months, rather, there, Fuller has lost three black staff. And someone has told a, a beloved staff member told us that in from starting from 2011, so from 2011 to 2018, Fuller has lost seven black faculty. So that is a rate of one a year. But if you remember what I just said, there were three that were lost this year. But on average, we're losing one black faculty member a year. And so we just and then they're not hiring, really hiring any African-American um, faculty to replenish those that have been that have been lost. And then also as a result of that, there's no few African-American students that come to Fuller and that actually graduate with their degrees. And I don't have any numbers for the attrition rate, but from what I understand, um, particularly in Pasadena, that the attrition rate is high for black students. Um, the other thing, and this is something that affects me very directly, is that there's little to no engagement um, with black scholarship and thought at Fuller. Oftentimes, if, if, 
it's in the course. It will be on the syllabus. So James Cone or some other black token black scholar will be on the syllabus, but they will be in the required reading. Or if they're in the required reading, as what's happened to me in, in a couple of classes, it's like, okay, we're going to have a week where it's diversity week. And then we're going to go back to talking about all of the white excuse me, all the white male theologians that we've, that we've been talking about, um, that we feel like that there is a culture of anti-blackness. Um, there is, especially on the Pasadena campus, um, hostility and apathy toward black persons. Um, there, there are stories, if you look at the seminary, while black hashtag, there are stories. Um, there's been a young, a, a woman that's told her story of different things that have happened to her, different things that professors have said in class. There have been white allies who have come out and who have said some of the things that they've had professors say in their class about colonization and about different things, just, just a um, very, very anti-black attitude among many people on campus. And, and even among students, um, a student threatened another student in a racially charged incident. And then the other thing kind of connected to that is that the, the administration has mishandled or ignored some of these instances of racial impropriety. So we have where a black student has complained about a professor who used the N-word as part of a lecture. And in that case, the faculty actually did, they, they brought the faculty in, um, they talked to him and then he had to have diversity training, but there was no really formal disciplinary process that, that went on from that, from what I understand. But there have been professors who have said, who have praised colonization as a way to spread the gospel. There have there was a professor that had his students actually do an exercise where they had to think of ways that colonization was good. There have been professors that have just said racially insensitive stuff to other employees or to students. There's also um, uh, for students who are international students, there's a culture where some of their um, they're, they're being exploited because they have to work and they have papers and so they can't really speak out about anything that's going on in the university and so their labor they've been used to to do campus security or to do different things on campus and so anyway we just really feel like that this culture is not very friendly to black people and so we started this hashtag or the, the Fuller Pasadena students started this hashtag and we have been putting those stories out. And then with the seminary while black, we've done toxic floor, but then really the idea behind seminary while black is that fuller prides itself on being is the flagship institution of evangelicalism. It's the flagship seminary of, evang of evangelicalism. And it prides itself on having a progressive attitude, but while it's had this progressive attitude. And so it's, they think that they're progressive, but really they're doing the bare minimum and the bare minimum is better than the people who are doing nothing at all. But while they're doing this, they're marginalizing a lot of black students. So while they think that they're progressive, it's actually not. And so we want to bring attention to this and then realize that if, if it's happening at Fuller, it's happening everywhere else in the evangelical world. And so that's why we've started Seminary While Black. That's that's good because it is happening in, in a lot of different places. Um, I want us to kind of just share our stories with uh, being in seminary while in Black institutions. Uh, Kimini, would you like to go, go uh, and share your experience <laughs> with us? First in relationship God. to uh, the hashtag? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I went to Westminster Theological Seminary two years ago now already. Um, but yeah, uh, 
Um, a lot of what she's saying, you know, um, rings true for me. I think the reality is there's so many different factors here, but I think I think we have to keep in mind is that whether you're progressives, whether you're on the far left, far right, whether it be progressive institution or conservative institution, um, these institutions are wholly invested in whiteness, period. That's the bottom line. They're wholly invested in white supremacy because it confers benefits. Um, and uh, so as a, a black student there, uh, I, I heard, you know, just atrocious things. I mean, just just absolutely horrendous um, white supremacist ideology like, oh, you know, uh, slavery wasn't that bad. Um, and that, you know, slavery happened all, all around the world. And so trying to somehow neutralize or negate chattel slavery, which was wholly different from all types of um, forms of, of slavery that actually are currently happening right now, right? Um, I'd hear uh, that, of course, there are benevolent slave holders, slave masters. I heard that in my church history class. Um, and I confronted that professor right then and there. And that was Dr. Jew that said that. And I, right in the middle of class, I had the only black woman, mind you, at the at, in the MDiv program. So you're talking about a whole nother beast here. So you, Ali, talking about a diversity week. I'm like, what's that? Ain't no such thing as a diversity week at Westminster Child, please. So, so what? Oh, what? Black faculty? Who? When? How? Um, so, but I'll digress from that. But um, I, I had to challenge that. And I'm like, what? Benevolent slave? What are you talking about? Beloved safe holder. And everybody's looking at me and like, you know, surprised. Like, don't be surprised when you're over here trying to denigrate um, and dismiss some very real suffering that we are all still impacted by today till this day. And I'm like, you would never, ever say that about the Holocaust. And you should never say that about the Holocaust. But you never would fix your mouth to say, oh, you know, Hitler was benevolent. Or Nazis, or they're benevolent Nazis. Where, how? That's an oxymoron. Um, and so there are things like that. Um, you would hear. I remember my last semester not even going uh, to medieval church um, because at that time, the professor of that that course was Carl Truman, and he would go make it a point in all of his church history classes, except for Reformation, because it didn't touch there. He'd always say you know, all this nonsense about African theologians very, being very dismissive. So dismissing um, um, Augustine's Africanness, um, saying that he's a North African, but really technically he's a citizen, citizen of Rome as a way of whitewashing him. Tertullian, all of these African theologians that gave us our... Um, he would integrate us, dismiss you know, as pish posh. So, I mean, that's that's just just a very clear examples of things that um, I endured there. Of course, there were stereotypes of all these things. And like when I was preaching in the class, everybody's like, oh, I expected you to be loud, loud and hooping and all. Why? Why would you expect that? Like, what? what, what is it? <laughs> that's just not how I preach the word. That's not how I do it. You know, so there was a there's countless things that I went through there. Um, I didn't know what I was entering into. I just knew that that's where the Lord had led me. And that's the reason why I was able to maintain um, and be there and to do well and to excel uh, there. But, uh, yeah, I would never want to experience it again. I mean, seminary, that was one of my worst experiences in my life. 
to be quite honest. It was just a very brutal and very traumatizing experience. To this day, I can't go back to the campus. It's just very hard for me. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's just, there's, there's just layers upon layers of uh, trauma that I experienced there. And I think people might be shocked saying that, but they don't understand that black folks move, know how to move through a white world. And so we, we wear the mask, right? And so we know what we have to do in order to um, get the work done and to do what we need to do. But yeah, I, I, that was um, a very traumatic uh, time in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I will say this, I would not, I don't know how folks are entering into white uh, white seminaries, whether it be, well, I guess there aren't black ones, you know, uh, there aren't, you know, count, there's not an HB, you know, there are, but you know what I'm saying. Um, in a post, post 45 world, I don't even know why people think about going to seminary. With that man in office, no. Knowing that they elected him, that would be a real problem for me. So like, I, I would not personally be able to do that. You know, it's a sidebar, you know. So teach his own. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm, I'm sure you have the similar um, uh, testament as Allie with not having um, resources or uh, books by African African or African American. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you had Augustine, but right, they whitewashed him, right? So they made it so he wasn't. So they tried to, you know, um, get rid of his blackness. And then you had, you know, Tertulli and all these other people. But of course, again, they tried to whitewash him. And so they, so they, because you, God forbid, you learn deep theological principles and frameworks from an African. What? That like, like, like that just can't happen, right? And not within a white supremacist framework. Um, so yeah, so yeah, definitely. Um, we did read Cone, but that was a suggested reading, right? So they uh, read it in order to critique him. That was, yeah, that was what it was. So, uh, so yeah, so you had to do the work, the extra work for, for you to, you know, to kind of harmonize it. So you had to go and find the, the black scholars to read so that you can kind of, so you don't lose your blackness. In the sunken place. So, so Ali, I, I I saw something that you tweeted where you said that um, one of your professors suggested that there weren't any black scholars. Um, yeah, can you can you share yeah, that? Yeah, so he didn't say that there weren't any black scholars. This was in my modern theology class, so it was covering uh, basically after the Civil War up to now, and then eschatology. And so we talked about classical liberalism. We talked about neo-orthodoxy. We talked about sort of the different periods of theology throughout the mostly the, the, the 20th century. And so at one point in this class, I emailed my professor and I said, because a lot of it leaned, Fuller is an, inter, is an interdenominational institution, um, but I felt like a lot of the course material was leaning reformed, which I mean, I'm not against, but I'm not reformed. And so it was like, well, you know, where's, where's my story in this? But a lot of it was leaning reformed or they were talking about liberalism, which I understand it, it was a historical and a theology class. So I understand why those things were present. But then we're talking about years and talking about stuff that overlaps with, I, I'm Pentecostal. I, I come from a, from a Pentecostal and, and charismatic background. And so we're talking about stuff that in, in the history that was overlapping my movement. And I was like, where is my movement? And they would talk and we talked about fundamentalism a little bit, but not the black church. We didn't talk about Pentecostal, the, the founding of Pentecostalism really at all. And so I emailed my professor and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time 
finding myself in this class. I'm having a hard time as an African-American Pentecostal woman finding my history, finding the things that we that we would talk about. So talking about um, Richard Allen, talking about the founding of the of the AME, which sort of overlaps some of the some of the time period. I mean, the AME was founded back in the, in the 1700s or 1800s. But it, but there was stuff that sort of overlapped because we went further back than that, but most of it took place after after the Civil War. And I'm just like, I can't find my place. I can't find myself in this theological story, in this theological history that you're that you're spinning. And so he replied back and he said, well, there's just not scholarship um, about the African American about the theology because it was because the way that Fuller does their systematic theology classes that you take two classes is still theology but then it's history and then you have two classes that are history but it's also theology so I was in the latter form of the class where it was emphasizing the theology more so than the history but we still had the history and so he was saying that there really wasn't any scholarship on that on those theologies. And so I was like, well, okay. But then I, I tweeted a stack of books that I had, and I can't remember, it was maybe, I mean, it was more than a dozen books, I think, that I had that are scholarship. Um, and even one being, was one of the books was Black Fire um, by, by um, Australia Alexander. So it was about the Pentecostal movement. Um, so there's scholarship, but in his mind, that scholarship didn't exist or it didn't exist in the way that it was supposed to, um, for, for it to be able to be presented in the class. And then something interesting is we also talked about Cone in my class and we didn't necessarily talk about him to critique him, but the way that cone was presented was it was contextual theology week and so we had we learned about cone we mentioned womanism but didn't talk about dolores williams or anybody else it was just womanism is was basically the black woman brand of feminism we talked about a ton of white women um feminist theologians we talked about uh, gustavo gutierrez which was a was a latin american liberation theologian and then we talked about perspectives from all over the world so all of this was crammed into one week of course material so we spent an entire week talking about Karl Barth and had to post and had to post about him. We spent an entire week, actually spent like two or three weeks, I think, talking about Jürgen Moltmann. But he had like his own forum that was dedicated to him, forum posts for that week because I'm an online student. Um, so we had a forum post that was dedicated to him. But then we had to talk about uh, James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez and um, uh, Mbiti and um, all these other people that from all around the world that their that their theologies, it's different people groups, so their theologies overlap because they're Christian, but they really have their own distinctive things, but they were presented not necessarily as a monolith, but as here you go, here's here's all the contextual theology. So we so we covered the the women and the people of color and that and that was it. And the way that it was even presented was just, hey, talk about these movements. And so then seeing my classmates interaction with that was that they didn't see how Cone applied to them. And Cone in my systematic theology book, he only got three pages, y'all. And actually he his, he appeared on three pages, but he actually wasn't on three pages because one of those pages in the systematic theology textbook that is required at Fuller that every student has to use, James Cone is like, James Cone and Martin Luther King are the only two black theologians that are mentioned in there. And James Cone appears in a fuller systematic theology textbook as many times as Johann Sebastian Bach. And so all of his, so the musician Bach, I mean, you know, if it, everybody knows who Bach is. 
he appears in the same in, in the same amount but this is a guy that wrote that wrote a book that was part of a movement but he gets this little paltry just a, a couple of a, a page and then two or three lines on another page and then he and then his third page is a citation and so it was just the the um black thought people of color thought just seriously marginalized in this in this context and it was just and it was horrible and and yeah i mean <laughs> That's yeah. really all I have to say about that's all I have to say about that because I'll start I'll start going off so so yeah so I tweet so I tweeted about that I tw- and I showed my books and I, I tweeted my books and then I guess the other point that I'll bring up is that um, I live in the town that I did my undergrad studies in so I have the access to their library I, I pay a fee to do um, to to use their library as an alumni and so. There are all these books that are black scholarship, that are black church scholarship at a secular institution. And yet my that that so all this stuff is accessible, yet my professor felt like that there wasn't that there wasn't scholarship. But I owned books that that you would have been able to teach out of and would be able to pull stuff out of. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, that's that's uh true. I think people aren't aware um of the scholarship because they haven't looked and they haven't been required to look that's why i think this conversation is so important we all have the same google though like like, black students have googled and they've been like they're like well you know i don't know of any and and, hold on a second let me let me google and black students have done that and have showed their professors it's we we all have the same google (laughs) google works the same for everybody yeah and it's amazing that people have to be pushed in that direction so we um malik yeah, share kind of your experience uh, with with this topic and how your experience has been in seminary, uh, seminary while black. Well, I guess let's start with this. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Hear you. Okay, good. Um, so I had the pleasure of doing my undergrad and my graduate work at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, so I did both my degrees there. Um, I think uh, my experience is unique in the sense that when I began. Uh, as a college student, there were a lot of difficulties there, and I noticed the cultural difference. Obviously, uh, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and then I moved uh, to North Carolina to attend this school, and I experienced some of the cultural differences there that made it for being African-American in a predominantly white context. Now, toward the latter part of my time there, uh, well, all of my time there, I had a relationship with the president and the provost, the top two ranking people at the institution. And toward the latter part of my time there, there began an initiative called the University Initiative, which was an all-inclusive institutional initiative that was moving in the direction of creating a more diverse campus and addressing the issues that make the campus not so welcoming to people who are not white. So I was able to see a lot of progress in that area as I was one of the two founding members of, uh, of starting that initiative. So I was able to work behind the scenes to make institutional change and have the hard conversations. But I think that progress was made because we had a very unique uh, leader. Our president had the type of posture where he would recognize his power as president, but also recognize his ignorance on certain issues being a white male. So we had an open door, he had an open door policy where I was able to, to pull him aside and say, that didn't look good, or we have to talk more about this, or we need to deal with this differently. So. I had a really unique experience where I know the issues that are there and I can go on and on and on about the issues in general that exist at seminaries, but I also was able to be a part of the solution. Uh, I'm happy to say that I think Southeastern has made a lot of strides in the right direction in addressing some of these issues, but unfortunately, 
And being a person who's kind of knowledgeable of most of the seminaries in the Southern Baptist tradition and the ones outside of it, it seems to be the only one that I think that has made significant progress in this area that addresses systemic change and not just having more black faces to assimilate the culture that's there. I think oftentimes the white leaders may have a passion or a desire to make sure that no one thinks they're racist or to make sure that everyone feels welcome. But the question doesn't become about power and changing the culture. It just becomes about appeasing the minority students so that they don't do something like what's happening right now at Fuller. So the goal can't be to keep the black people from getting upset but it needs to be uh, disassembling the white supremacy that exists within the system. So sometimes it takes difficult conversations dealing with people offending you to explain that to our white brothers. But that requires, I think, a certain type of person that's built for that. Me coming from Washington, D.C., I'm a very, I think, strong minded, opinionated person that didn't ever once feel the need to assimilate. I have no problem being myself in any culture that I'm put in, and I don't feel the need to adjust to be accepted because I'm confident in who I am. I know not everyone's built that way. And what concerns me is that when you have African-Americans who go into contexts like these, they end up putting on five different faces and coming, becoming three different people just to feel accepted. Some examples of that that I think are unfortunate are I've seen time and time again African-Americans who are very... Uh, pro-Black church, grew up in Black churches, and they attend institutions like these, and they leave or two or three years into their tenure there, they become very hypercritical of Black churches, Black theology, Black leader. I mean, white supremacy isn't just, uh, you know, the KKK or the alt-right. White supremacy is also prioritizing white thought over others' thought. So it's not always just that extreme that I imagine a lot of my white brothers go to, but it's also the prioritization of white thought and thinking of your thought process, your theology, and your culture as superior. So what I think ends up happening is you see things like people who were invested in the black church and black community beginning to distance themselves from that. And even more practical things, and this this may, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm nitpicking or being combative for no reason, but something that really was odd to me is I'm originally from a place in Washington, D.C. that was called Chocolate City. That's just to let you know, that's how black it was. And what's normal that I've seen in all cultures is we typically date within our race. That's just something that most people do. I don't attribute that to racism. I just think we date within proximity. However, a trend that I've noticed that kind of was odd to me is that most of the African-American men in these contexts tend to distance themselves or have this negative view of black women. And to me, that's just odd. The norm is to date within your race and that's fine. But I think the cultural uh, standards that exist within there are presented as the way rather than a way. So when the brothers begin, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when the brothers Mm -hmm. begin to see uh, biblical womanhood through a white cultural perspective, Mm -hmm. They begin to judge our sisters through that lens and don't see them as viable candidates for for pursuit. So, I mean, I felt odd. I can say in my experience, I felt kind of the odd man out because I was the only one, one, yeah, I was the only one of the all the black men there. I was the only one that attended a black church. 
And I was the only one that I could see. I mean, there were a few others that, that were in uh, relationships with, with black women, but more often than not, the norm is, you know, to pursue white women. And there always is just like, I've experienced this, this, uh, I think it's a concern that, and I know this is, this is going to start some fire when I drop this, but this concern that black women aren't submissive enough. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's just to, to point to just a few examples of, I think when you get immersed in something and you don't have a strong identity or foundation of who you are, you end up becoming something that's more uh, fitting to, to, uh, to, to rise and to matriculate within that culture. And I think it's okay to attend these schools, but you got to have a firm foundation of who you are and don't leave looking like a menstrual show. Oh, well, well, a word. Uh, Jamar is here with us. Are you yes. Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can yeah. hear you, but we can't see you. I know, mm-hmm. I know. I'm sorry for this uh, static picture, but it's probably better in the long run that you don't see me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have similar experiences to what everybody has spoken about. Um, I would back up the conversation a little bit because I can imagine there are people listening right now who will tune in to the recording and just throw their hands up like, why even would you go to a white seminary in the first place? Uh, mm-hmm. What would compel a black person to go go to some place that has so much hegemonic whiteness embedded in the institution? Mm-hmm. And I get that, especially if you grew up in the black church and you went to a different kind of seminary uh, from the outside looking in, it may not make sense. But Kemeny touched on this. It's like you on one level, you don't know what it's going to be like. Like you can theorize, but when you're in there, it's a totally different story. And so I attended Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. So we talk in the deep South, right? And it is a bastion of just Southernness and uh, white male Southernness in its Christian and Protestant manifestations. Uh, I couldn't have anticipated exactly what that experience would be like before I went in. And I went in with a a theological agreement on some main points, right? Like, so there's a, there's a sense in which you're looking at it and you say, well, I agree with X, Y, Z things, maybe not everything they say, but enough to, to enroll here. And then you get in there and you see, uh, just how difficult it is. And all of us, we have tried to be part of the change. We've tried to push forward in positive ways, the racial conversation. And what it really boils down to is power. And what's happening in uh, predominantly white seminaries is they're used to having power, which means being able to control the narrative through the mm-hmm. curriculum, through hiring and firing, through student recruitment, And then when any people of color come along, but particularly black people come along and say, hey, you need to actually share your power and deploy it in different ways. That's when you start running up against the boundaries of whiteness. That's Mm -hmm. when you see there's not as much bend and flex. Now, hey, we're cool to be friends. You can be in our classes. You can even make comments about race. But but don't start talk about don't start talking about this power stuff. Okay, and nobody's going to come right out and say that. But what they do tells me what they believe and what they believe is that black theology is inferior to white theology. Mm -hmm. That's why you don't see it. And that's why you don't learn it. And that's why when it is brought up, it is merely to critique it. Mm -hmm. And I'm upset 
I have a level of anger because I didn't grow up Christian. And my first interactions were with white Christians. Mm-hmm. And so that's all I knew. And it wasn't until I'm an adult in my 30s, really, that I start to co- discovering black mm-hmm. theologians and black theology mm-hmm. and the richness of the black church, which mm-hmm. was already embedded in my culture, thank God. But I didn't have that firsthand experience of growing mm-hmm. up in church to know it. And so I feel like I was deprived. And not only that I was deprived as a black person, but that my, my white brothers and sisters were deprived, too. We are impoverished to the degree that we don't learn from the diversity around us and among us. God created that for a reason. And you have folks deliberately cutting off the beauty and the intelligence and uh, the benefit of that diversity, which not only affects people of color, but folks in the majority, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So true. So true. I guess I need to share my story now. Uh, I I went to Liberty Seminary. Oh. It was called. It's called Liberty Divinity School now, but it's mm-hmm. at Liberty. It was ba- Liberty Baptist mm-hmm. Theological Seminary when I was attending. Um, and people asked me why in the world, uh, as a black woman, would you go there? Um, I grew up in a <laughs> because I actually I didn't do online. I actually moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. I grew mm-hmm. up in a uh, more of a Christian bubble. Um, just growing up in church all my life. And I didn't even think anything of, I didn't know the history before I enrolled. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I just, I just was like, I'm going to go to seminary. I saw some advertisements. I knew a couple people that went there. And at the time it was one of the only schools when I made a decision late to, to start seminary is one of the only schools that still had open enrollment. So I was like, I'm going to go here. Uh, it'll be fine. And for the most part, it wasn't, I didn't experience issues directly from my professors. Um, I had some, I had some professors. Well, I didn't personally have professors, but I've heard stories of some things that were said that were very, very inappropriate, um, to, to, some of my um, fellow African-American classmates, but I didn't personally have them as a professor. The problems I had came from my peers. Um, I had a, a, a student, a, a fellow peer that was Korean American unfollow me on Instagram because she, she told me I posted too much about black stuff. Um, oh I had a, a guy who said, you know, what I was doing with the Jude 3 was prejudice because if I started an apologetics ministry, just if he started an apologetics ministry just for white people, I would say he was racist. And I'm like, but all apologetics, all of them <laughs> are already <laughs> mostly white, so that's what we need. Um, so I had people not understanding why I was starting something specifically for African Americans. So it was most of my, it was more so my peers who caused the problem for me. My professors were really understanding. Um, now, we didn't read a lot of what well, our curriculum was very white. Um, so, yeah. And what I'm thankful for is that I have professors that have, because of the work I'm doing and because they've been supportive of me, they have asked me for things that they could change in their curriculum. And I'm assuming that um, I haven't, you know, went back and double checked. Uh, but they're they're because of 
me building rapport and continuing to talk to them. I talk to about three of them still regularly. Um, they've heard my critiques. I've spent hours talking to them. I was really intentional about doing that um, and getting to know them and them getting to know me. Um, that has helped. But I think for me, the most isolation I felt on campus came from my peers, came from me being one of the only black students on top of being a uh, the black woman, the only black woman oftentimes. So I'm a double minority, a woman and uh, mm -hmm. black in the classes oftentimes. So my perspective is going to be different. But most of it came from my peers, which were the same age. And it was amazing to me. And it's still amazing to me that it was the older white men that were my professors that had more that were more gracious in hearing my critiques and understood why I wanted to do what I wanted to do versus the people that were my age um, that gave me more trouble than my professors. So that caused, you know, thankfully I was three hours away from DC. So I would go to DC every week, I, weekend I could just to be around my black friends um, <laughs> to, 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 to make sure I was good. And I attended, um, church at Alfred Street Baptist Church mm -hmm. on the weekend. So I was I was in a white space, but I kept my um, social activity in black spaces to keep that balance uh, because it just wasn't for me a, a healthy place for me to be immersed in um, because it didn't speak to my culture or my experiences. Um, so that's kind of what my experience was in, in seminary um, at at Liberty. Um, I'd like to I'd speak like to, something to something to that, to that Jamar said. said. He was talking about how he went to the institution because he had a theological agreement with them and, and all of that. Well, in my context, in my personal situation, I wasn't recruited, but I went because of what the institution said that it was. And so at Fuller, it was that my, my um, emphasis at Fuller is race, cultural identity, and reconciliation. Um, that's that's a brand new thing that started, I think it was spring of 2017, but, they, but one of the thing that got me in was a just peacemaking emphasis, which seemed to be along the same lines as that. And on their website, they had black and brown faces all over their website, women all over their website. Their recruitment videos talked about how they were how they were diverse. And so there was this narrative that was being built that was like, we want you here. We want you to, to be part of this. We want you. And, and I have a friend that was actually recruited, that was recruited by Fuller, that was like, we want black students here. You this would this would be great. This would shape you as a leader. And so it's different, a little bit different whenever you don't have it when when I think in, in a committee in Jamar's case where it was like you have theological convictions, so you attend a school. But there, there's a whole other experience of whenever, and it can still be a theological, it, it can still be a convictional thing, but whereas a Black student, the school recruits you and sells you a bill of goods that they are for progress and that they are wanting to include you. But um, something that I said um, earlier is that, yes, they want to include us and they want to give us a seat at the table, but they want to determine the venue, the menu, and the seating. So hey. you get to sit at the table, but we're going to say where the table is. We're going to say what you're going to eat. And then we're going to tell you where to sit at the table, which often is at the end of the table and away from the power. 
which is something else that Jamar was talking about and how, and this is an issue at Fuller where we have a, something that's going to be announced is a professor. I won't, I won't name whom she won't name who she is, but she has been promoted sort of, but she's being given all of these extra duties and responsibilities and everything, everything that a provost would be, but she's not getting the title or the authority of a provost. And so there is all, and, and we experience it, I think, even in the church where there is a, we want you at the table, but we're afraid to give you authority. We're afraid to, you know, we, everybody, I, I don't know, I've had this experience and maybe it's just me and I'm, and I'm weird as my personality, but it's like, we'll give you authority or we'll give you influence, but then we got to kind of watch and kind of see what you're going to do with it because we're, because we're not sure where other people is like, okay, you're, you're inexperienced or whatever. You're white. Hey, you can, you can do this. And where there's almost a, a skepticism toward black leadership. There's a skepticism and there's a, a pulling back and like, we have to review you. And, and an issue at Fuller too is with the scholarship is that supposedly all of these black scholars, these, these uh, teachers that these professors, well, they're, they're, it's that the quality of their scholarship isn't, isn't regarded the same. And well, they're, they're not doing the level of scholarship that we need, but it's the whole, it's the old adage having to work twice as hard to do, um, I do have something I wanted to um, interject and say um, I think two points there's actually there's a lot I can say but I'm going to try not to be that way Um, one is that I think we have to understand that um, there is uh, this principle I would say called um, interest convergence within a critical race theory. So it is advantageous for seminaries like a Fuller to project an image that is not completely accurate. Uh, can, can you all hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, you know, by showing you all these people of color and how they're bouncing in the sun and having a great time. And, and then you get there and it's a bait and switch, right? And you get there, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't exactly what y'all advertise or Maybe there are people of color there, but a lot of them are international students, maybe. In the case, at least that was the case of my seminary. So mm-hmm. they don't, and this, because they just got here, they don't have any understanding of white supremacy and how it works. <laughs> they have no idea. They just know that they, they're here on scholarship. Somebody's a white, nice white family's taking them in. So they don't, they're not going to rock the boat. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, so, so there's, a, there's a sense in which within interest convergence, you give this... Um, this pro- you project this image. It's like, oh yes, we want this you at the table. We want you here because it makes me look like I'm not racist. My institution is not racist, right? Um, and then it's in your interest, right, as the person of color, because you're like, finally, I'm getting a seat at the table, and finally, I can maybe make some moves. But then you get in there and you see, like, oh no, I still have absolutely no control. I'm a token. Um, they've given me a folding chair and not, not giving me a nice wooden chair like everybody else has. You learn, you know, you, you learn that they didn't gave you the dollar menu and they eat the well, steak. I mean, you just, you learn a whole lot. So, so there's that aspect. Then I'd also say, uh, which I could go deeper into that, but that's not what we're doing today. But uh, I'd also say that before you go into these institutions, you have to have a very robust theological anthropology, which just, it's just a big long way of saying you've really got to embrace um, you have to know, you know, you know that God made you black on purpose and that yes. it's good and that you're going to retain that blackness mm-hmm. and 
in the new heavens and new earth. You have to know that. Um, you you have really have got to be very secure in your blackness because you know as black people, that's always constantly being denigrated from the time we come out the womb. It is denigrated um, for us, and so that's something we really have got to. You have to enter into that world with that in mind is what I'd say. There's a lot more I could say, but those are the two points I I wanted to interject and or or to add to the conversation. And I'll add something too, Akimini, you hit on a good point um, because seminaries and evangelical institutions will say, well, we have diversity and their diversity comes from people that are um, not African-Americans. They're international. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, They can even be African students that Mm -hmm. are, are just here for the first year. And they'll be like, oh, we have black students um, without realizing that uh, the international students and even the um, students that are from uh, the continent Mm -hmm. that are here don't have the same level of tension uh, as African-Americans and and white white Americans. And so there's a different history. Uh, There's the history of slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, all of those things. And so they'll be like, oh, we're diverse. We're not, it's not a, a white evangelical institution. We have diversity. We have internationals. And yeah. it's like, no, but there's still attention and something that hasn't been hit on as much as it's like, how can you get along with so many international students or international people or international staff, but you still can't connect with African-Americans? And so your international students are an scapegoat for the problem that you have. Yeah. And many organizations will point to international diversity yeah. as a means to say that they have diversity and without realizing there's still tension between African-Americans and white Americans. And you can't point to that to try to uh, yeah. sidestep that problem. So let, let's just call a thing a thing. That is a form of institutional racism. And the reason why that's a form of institutional racism is that if you have people that can conform and assimilate to white culture and that can conform and assimilate to what the institution expects of them, it can actually push people, uh, people of color who are American. And I'm not trying to do the whole national, international. I'm not trying to do, do recreate the diaspora wars here. I'm just saying that sometimes that the way that this, that this comes off is, oh, look, well, look at how these international students are behaving. Look, they, look, the African, the African students on campus, they're not mad. They're happy. Well, of course they're happy because they're like, they're here and you hold all the power in their life. You hold their work visa. They, they like, they have, to, they're on a student visa. So, they have to be, they, they have to conform, they have to be in school. So of course they're going to play nice. Of course they're going to play ball. And then even there's times whenever um, international faculty will push, push faculty, push um, people who are American out and take some of their, take some of their spaces. And I don't want to sound, you know, weird. I know that sounds kind of, kind of Trump-esque with that, but that's a situation. I won't name all of it, but that's a situation um, that's, that's happening at my institution where there is international faculty who's very brilliant, very capable, but they've been placed in a position within the institution that culturally does not fit them, that culturally it's not, it's not their expertise. It's not their culture, but they've been put in charge of 
caring for students of color who are the same color skin as them, but not the same culture. And that can, and I feel like that, that sometimes the use, the leveraging of international students, it's a form of institutionalized racism against the people in American seminaries, against American students, but it's also a form of institutionalized racism against those international students, because what you're, what they are having to do is then conform to the dominant culture and be like the dominant culture in order, in order to succeed. Mm-hmm. I'll also add that I just think that, you know, I don't want to act like you can't critique um, these institutions and so on and so forth. I think they need to be critiqued from inside, from outside. Let's hold them accountable as Christians. And that's the main factor here, I think, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a standard. Um, and prioritizing whiteness over others isn't acceptable. I get it from a business perspective. But if you're articulating uh, the values of Christ, I think we have room to challenge for more. So I get that. However, I want to add this because I think that I've observed this as well, um, that what happens is when African-Americans are in spaces like these, they get frustrated. Um, If they they aren't assimilating, if they don't exhibit a proximity to cultural whiteness, they aren't just happy-go-lucky about everything and don't mind. If you're one of the people that articulates problems, sometimes it starts off with the frustration. You try, you maybe get excited about some progress and then something sets you back. Someone invites Franklin Graham to campus or something like that. And then you feel like, oh man, I thought we were moving forward. And then something like that makes you feel like, you know, you've been set back and you don't put it out there. You know, he's not, uh, I don't think black people like him that much. But (laughs) my, my point is, you know, you, you, you get this thing where you're jerked back and forth and I, and I can, if, if need be explained later, but I know some people stand as like this great saint, but like, I mean, problematic guy. But point being, we can go back and forth and have good days, bad days, but I've seen what happened is I see black brothers and sisters that become apathetic about white Christians in general and then fall into a place of bitterness where they just don't like white people. And It's a very unhealthy space. I think, you know, Dr. Anthony Bradley uh, will will talk about how bad his experience was being probably one of the, at one time, the most prominent Black evangelical intellectual. And uh, he got hit from all sides. And I think they raked him over the coals and probably had him wanting to leave the country like some others have. and I remember he took a break, he took a break from Twitter. And one of the things he, he pointed out was he said a friend said to him that, you know, I think you may have some symptoms of PTSD because of all the white evangelicals put you through. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important to highlight because this trauma, if you're not set up to deal with some of the difficulties here and you're not, you don't have a foundation of who you are, you can really... I mean, lose your mind or become this character character of who you once were or start saying things like slavery is a choice. Like these Mm -hmm. things happen when you get so disconnected from reality. So I bring that up to say that I hope and try to counsel and advise others to not fall into this apathetic place of one, uh, just saying whatever white people want you to say to be accepted but also not getting to a point where you hate our white brothers and sisters, because once again, these white institutions don't represent white people as a whole. 
I've had a lot of wins with white brothers and sisters too. They just don't mm -hmm. happen to be the ones running everything with the money in their pockets. But I've seen a lot of wins too. And that's not to take away from the issue at hand, but I think rather than just sitting in this space of being frustrated, you have to be an adult and make a decision. Are you going to be the person to stay in it for the long haul, work within the system, and hopefully potentially be a person in leadership one day to make changes? Or are you just not going to be involved at all? Both are fine choices. But I don't think that we should get to a point where we're building a platform on uh, Black frustration with white people. Because I think that if you are in the context doing the work on trying to deal with these issues, then you have a space to, uh, to, make, to deal with the issue. Like talking about an issue is not the same as dealing with the issue. And I see a lot of us fall into the space where we just talk about the issue over there, but don't deal with any white people and aren't trying to educate them and aren't presenting resources. So I just think that if you're going to talk about the issue and, and, and zoom in on it, be in the trenches working with white brothers and sisters to help them to understand the problem. But don't just become an apathetic spectator that is just putting out, you know, they did this to me, they did that to me, and end up in this just this apathetic space. You know, being frustrated is fine, but once again, recognize these are still brothers and sisters, and you may have run into some who won't listen, but take the time to educate those who will. Yeah, I think you bring up some great points, Malik, and it's something that I sort of work through constantly on multiple levels. On a personal level, right, like I was at RTS and helped to start the African-American Leadership Initiative. So, you know, we were we were in Jackson, Mississippi, which is 80 percent African-American, which is the second highest percentage of any city over 100,000 in the United States. And yet we only had three black students when I was there. Um, again, not counting the international students, three African-American students. And so I was like, hey, what gives? And so I was working with administration and, and professors and staff. And again, uh, like you said, had some good wins, had a lot of support. I mean, we got the program off the ground, um, got a lot of pushback from other students, as Ali, uh, I think, mentioned. It wasn't necessarily or, or it might have been Lisa, but it wasn't necessarily from uh, the professors, it was it was other students, particularly white male students who had a lot of the pushback, but then there were others who were on board. Um, but what I what I came to experience was, like I said earlier, you hit a boundary, um, at least in my experience, with uh, the level of change that could occur. Mm -hmm. um, and that you had the capacity for, right? Like this is the double burden of being black in a predominantly white space is that you've got to do all the other things that your fellow white students are doing, plus try to educate yourself about black theology and, and black church and black context. So you've got all that additional labor, yeah. not to mention the day-to-day -day labor of survival. I mean, Kemeny hit it on the head, like in this presidency, uh, it's become even more critical uh, that we we talk openly and candidly about just the danger of black existence where you can't even sit in a Starbucks in peace, right? So you got all of that piling on and then you have to decide, all right, am I going to go fully invest in changing this institution that at the end of the day, uh, and it may not be a single individual that's 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 blocking the progress, but at the end of the day, it doesn't want to change institutionally, right? And so here's here's where I want to land the plane is, 
black anger is legitimate. I think a, a lot of times we look at black people getting frustrated and I'm not saying this is what you were saying, Malik, I'm just using that as a jumping off point. Um, I think a lot of times we look at black frustration and say, oh, they're throwing up their hands. They're giving up on reconciliation. They don't want to work with white people. And similarly, when we voice our experiences, the very negative and literally traumatic experiences, it's seen as complaining. And I just want to speak to, to black folks and other folks of color, women, you know, we have suffered in silence for a really long time. And a lot of that suffering has come from us being willing to work with people who couldn't even meet us halfway. Is mm-hmm. being willing to work with people who just didn't understand our ex- our very existence is at stake. And so what I hope white folks hear is that we have to shift the conversation from intent to impact. So a lot of times people yeah. in the majority will say, well, I didn't mean to be racist. That's well and good. But guess what? The impact was harm. The impact was racist. The impact was hurting and burdening people. And so we got to deal with that. And it's putting the oppressed in the center of the conversation and say, how can we Mm -hmm. relieve the oppression rather than comfort the oppressor, even when he or she is trying to change? That's great. (laughs) But that's not the whole story. And so um, I just want to make sure that we look at you know, black frustration, sometimes it is giving up, sometimes it is bitterness, but you know, the folks on this call, uh, and I think many of the people listening, it's more a sense of wanting to weep with those who weep. Um, It's more of a lament, which is a a, a sort of public crying out to God. And um, if that's happening, I just want to affirm that that's human, that's natural. And, um, and And we do have one who has experienced and suffered like we have and uh, who advocates for us to the father. Yeah, Jamar, I'll just add two things to that. I I agree with you. And I think that uh, there is a space for that. And I'm one of the people I do offer the critiques in private and emails in meetings and on social media, I offer the critiques. Uh, But I do think that it was just important to highlight and I'm not, you know, talking about specific people, but I do think the profile exists where it's convenient because I think, you know, just, just being real, a lot of times we all have our individual platforms that we're trying to build. And some, I do think, take advantage of the frustration and build a, uh, an identity or a platform on the backs of, oh, you know, black people are pissed with white evangelicals. So let me, you know, capitalize on that. And, it, and I just, I don't think sometimes it may not be the best intentions Offer the critiques, but be willing to do the work. So if you're willing to do the work, I'm fine. Say what you want to say. But if you're just throwing the critiques and you're not in the trenches doing the work, it just seems a bit problematic to me. But the other side of that, to, uh, to add to my original statement, I know this from the perspective of being an employee of the president, working directly in the president's office to establish, to deal with these issues. I think what I got was a very unique blessing that I don't think anybody else at any other school has really had the opportunity to do. So I have a very unique perspective on that. So I'll say this, and this is, I hope, hopefully freeing to any brother or sister that may be in an institution like this being t- being asked, hey, help us. I'll say this. I don't think any student should be trying to do this. Um, I don't think the responsibility should be put on a student. The person that is responsible for trying to help the institution think through these things and deal with 
the racial bias, the insensitivity, and reaching out to more minority students, that person needs to be paid. They need to bring someone on and pay them to do that and not just borrow all the opinions of a student because I think that's putting a lot on the student to have to straddle between the two. So one, the person should be paid. Two, the top-down approach is what works, not the bottom-up. A lot of times when the white institutions want to make progress in these areas, they look at it from the, the bottom-up. Help us get more diverse students, and then somehow the diverse students will change the system. That's not how schools work. The people that work at the schools set the tone for the culture, and the culture affects the students. So it needs to start at the top. And I think no one, I would recommend from personal experience, and going to other institutions, having consulted for Liberty University and other schools of the like that are want to move in this direction, I don't think anyone, any black brother or sister or minority should do the damage to themselves of trying to take on the responsibility of turning the tide of a historically potentially racist school without having the support of the administration in writing and in deed. A lot of times what happens is they'll hire on a black face and say, all right, fix the issue and put them over in a corner, throw some money their way and expect them to fix it. What needs to happen is this needs to be something that the administration is supporting in their word and their actions and empowering the person to do the work. And I think because I talk about power dynamics, that's why we're however many years in, we still haven't really seen progress in these areas in our seminaries, because I think the concern is sharing the power. Uh, we start with empowering a person to lead in that area. And hopefully, once again, I think I was blessed to have a humble president, but that's hard to find <laughs> these days. But someone who's gonna trust the leadership of that minority to take the school in the new direction, and hopefully one day having a black provost, having a black president, and having a black dean over a specific college within a university or a, a school of theology. So don't take the bait of someone offering you a job to help the white school think through these things unless you're set up properly. Otherwise, you'll end up with PTSD. Yeah, and I want to add to that. Um, one thing that I, I'm very passionate about with the G3 project, and I know Jamar is, as he leads uh, the witness, and one of the reasons we did this uh, joint partnership with G3 and the witness for this uh, hangout is we are intentional about promoting black scholars. They won't do it for us, but we're gonna take it upon ourselves to promote them. Mm -hmm. And we are very, very, very intentional about that. We have courageous conversations. Um, thank, I thank God to have The Witness as one of our partners in that, but that's gonna take place in Chicago. We have 24 panelists that are pastors and scholars that don't, um, probably wouldn't necessarily get the shine that some of our uh, white brothers and sisters uh, get in, in, in scholarship, but we're going to promote them and we need to hear their voices because they're very important. Um, and if, in no, if no one else will platform them, if they will just be a footnote in a white seminary, we need to make sure with our platforms that we boost them, that we celebrate them. Because I see this so often, white institutions, the, they will try to caricature us. And so uh, when they have events, when they have conferences, the only black people they'll highlight 
is a Christian hip hop artist or a Christian poet or a black person yeah. that's an artist, but they will not book our black scholars. The platform will have a uh, 20, uh, no, that's, that's a lot for a conference, but it'll have <laughs> four, <laughs> four or five white scholars with PhDs and, and the only black person that will be there is a, is a hip hop artist. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm a fan of Christian hip hop. I don't not like it, but I'm just saying, notice the ways in which they characterize us. Notice the ways in which they're content with us being um, seen. They don't want to see us as the intellectual. Um, they kind of want it to view us in a certain type of way. And I think that's problematic. So one of the things that we, myself and, and Jamar are very intentional about is promoting, and I know all of you on here as well, I can speak for y'all, it's a, 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 a um, really going to promote black scholarship. Would you like to add something to that, Jamar? Uh, yes, 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 yes. I didn't know if I was still on mute. Um, yes. So one of the things that I had to discover on this journey was as I was pouring. So we used to be called the Reformed African-American Network and we changed our name October 31st, 2017 on literally the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Didn't plan it that way. That was always just our anniversary. But we changed our name from RAND to The Witness. And our tagline is a Black Christian collective. One of the things that we were intentional about as we made this transition, which was both for push and pull factors, uh, there were things that were sort of forcing us to go in a different direction, but as well, there were things that were drawing us and were attractive to us. One of the pull factors was the opportunity to lean into the Black church tradition much more than we were able to do. What Rand had become was basically apologetics uh, to white people to sort of make the case that we should be talking about race and justice as issues of the gospel. Now, there's always a place for that, but we started to think about, well, as we're expending all of this energy sort of trying to persuade people who just don't get it yet, what about a Black people who are looking for Christian resources and, and commentary are they getting enough of what they need or are they really just listening in on our conversations to white people sort of explaining the black experience? And then B, what are we missing as an organization as we are really failing to access the very rich storied tradition of the black church? So I have been incredibly encouraged and motivated by uh, the opportunity to engage with um, more black thinkers and activists. So just as one quick example, we were in Memphis for MLK 50 and we attended the events that the National Civil Rights Museum put on and they're built onto the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated. And they had a wonderful slate of speakers from Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, to Jesse Jackson, who, who was literally on the balcony when Dr. Mm -hmm. King uh, was assassinated, to uh, all sorts of activists. We got to interview Bree Newsom, who climbed the flagpole in South Carolina and tore down the Confederate flag, this symbol um, over the state house of white supremacy. And the, the amount of religion in that event was off the charts. It wasn't even a Christian event, but it was so in heart, it was so encouraging as a black person to hear call and response 
to there were even responsive readings in some of the proceedings and it was led by black people and it, it was just a great reminder of the prophetic power of the black church that you know in the 21st century and millennials and gen zers we may not have the same firsthand experience as folks who lived during the civil rights movement and that was just a little taste of it so i'm thrilled to be able to highlight and access uh more of the black church and 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 the relevance that it still has for today yeah yeah and i think that's so so vital and and for those who saw the flyer you saw cj dr cj rose was supposed to be on us on with us and he was having some Wi-Fi trouble. He was trying to uh, get it uh, fixed, but um, I don't think he was able to in time to be on with us. So if you're wondering where he's at, that's where he's at. Uh, but all of these, as um, most of most of the people on that were on this panel, including CJ in his absence, will be at Courageous Conversations in Chicago. I want to plug that because if you're, if you're on here and say, I don't know any black scholars, uh, meet us at Courageous Conversations in Chicago hey. on Monday, Seriously. September 3rd. Early registration is only $25. You can get your tickets. If you are an organization and you have utilized and you're saying, what can I do to help promote this agenda? Um, if your organization, an institution, we believe in reparations. So you can financially use your privilege and power because people are always saying, I don't know steps to use my privilege and my power, my organization to help benefit black organizations. I don't know what to do. Well, here's something. Reparations now. Yes. The, the wealth that you have, the privilege and the power that you have to give to Jew3 Project, uh, The Witness, um, to help fund initiatives to help promote black scholarship. Yes. Um, if you would like to be a sponsor, your organization would like to be a sponsor for Courageous Conversations, you can um, go to our website. There's a link under there, Jew3Project.com backslash NCC, National Courageous Conversation. And there's a link to help partner and sponsor with us. And also, you can support us on a monthly basis. You can support the witness on a monthly basis. There's oh, other yes. truth table, truth table. You can help support. <laughs> and so, don't don't say My I'm over and I don't know what to do. Uh, use your privilege and power and steward your resources to help um, underfunded minority-led organizations. That's a right. practical Those step. Sums. Right. Um, right. Yes. Checks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, honestly, and I've talked about this in a meeting, um, and I had the privilege to sit around a table of uh, white evangelical leaders, and I was, uh, I think, it, me and another black person there. But I, I raised the point that evangelical funding structures are not built for minorities to be sustainable. Um, it's it's really for white middle class people to thrive, and so you're saying we don't have any black people that we that are sustained. The funding structures aren't built to support uh, minorities, oftentimes. And even there was a, um, a Asian American there, and he talked about like as for, it's not built for them either because of their shame culture. They don't like asking people for money in their culture, so they can't raise funds. So. I think we need to consider the ways in which our funding structures are problematic for minorities. Sure, um, sure. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a network that understands giving um, monthly for a, a missionary campus ministry person, uh, then you're not going to be able to sustain in that initiative in that in that system. 
So we need to look at ways in which our systems prevent minorities from thriving. We need to not uh, micromanage minorities when we want to bring them on, um, that we operate in the level of suspicion. We want to give you money, but we want to watch you when you have it. Um, yeah, uh, when you would give money to others and not uh, not even think of, uh, about it, but you think about it, the ways in which audit yourself. If you're a white person that's watching, audit, am I? When I think about giving money to black people, am I hyper um, vigilant? Am I suspicious? Uh, but when I give it to a white person, I'm giving it freely. That those kinds of things are things you need to be thinking about in ways in which you support, how you support um, black people. Are you suspicious of black people? Do you say, well, I'll bring you on, but there's conditions. Um, you know, those are some things. Uh, we've, we've gone over the hours time, uh, but I wanna give everybody a final word for them to say, and then uh, I'll let Jamar close us out with any other announcements. Remember, register for Courageous Conversations, September 3rd. Uh, it's going to be a great time. We got some of the best and brightest coming um, and to talk about exclusivity, authority of scripture, Paul versus Jesus, justice, sexuality, all from a black um, scholarly perspective. It's, I don't think it's ever been done before and it's progressives and conservatives. So it's going to be a s historic time and I'm looking, looking forward to it. So make sure you register and meet us in Chicago on September 3rd. Um, mm -hmm. I'll start with Allie. We'll go with Akimini, Malik, and then Jamar will close us out. So I would just like to say, um, you know, Fuller, Black Fuller students, we covet your prayers right now, um, especially those on Pasadena campus. We had a protest, the Pasadena students staged a protest during baccalaureate today, and one of our students actually got up and spoke to Dr. Laberton and just really gave us gave a speech to him. And it was it was great, but it was very passion filled, very brought a lot of things to light that I don't think had been really had been shared publicly. And so right now we just covet your prayers that the administration would be receptive to hear the things that we're asking from them. And that, um, like Malik said, that they would start to put the structures in place rather than it being students having to drive this, that we will get administrative power, that we'll get faculty power to help us with this. And then also um, let's keep the conversation going. We have seminary, hashtag seminary while black or uh, so yeah, I said that right. Seminary while black. Um, we have that hashtag that's that's going and so you can share your experience we want we want to amplify that i think that it's a very it's been very healing for some of the people who've been able to participate in that they've been able um to lament and we've been able to engage and lament together and so we just want to keep that conversation going and really want to build a movement to help students get the word out in their schools and to help students be able to hopefully affect change in their institutions. So thank you. And thank you for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Allie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, my um, final thought would be something that's practical. Some people would say it's not practical, but I think it is feasible. I just, I believe in justice. I'm more, I'm an anti-racist. That's, the, um, that's the, the framework that I work from. And so um, I, I don't believe that we can get to reconciliation until we face truth. Um, and repent and repair, um, and repair in the form of reparations. And so I, my step forward would be to um, exhort these uh, denominations 
uh, particularly with racist foundings, um, foundations that are connected to these seminaries, I believe that they need to go deep into their purse strings and actually um, dream up uh, reparation packages. I actually think retroactively for people who have already graduated from their institutions with over $50,000 debt, nobody's talked about that. Um, and, and also the students that have come in there to actually comp them for and, and just have them go for free because there are receipts called chattel slavery, um, called colonization, which is why some of the international students are coming here in the first place, particularly the ones from West Africa. The reason why they're mm-hmm. fleeing their country because of colonial uh, tribal lines that were created that that created warfare. That's the reason why they're fleeing their countries. If colonization never happened. They wouldn't have to flee here. So that would be my um, own admonishment is that people would, uh, these institutions would begin to think about ecclesiastical reparations and what that looks like in a very real and tangible way, retroactively applied and currently applied for students that are there right now and those that will come. Yeah. Um, Thank you for saying that, Kimberly. I think, you know, repentance is where we need to start, not good PR. So for the institutions that are wanting to move in the right direction, because we're Christians, we're not just thinking from a business perspective. So don't think from a perspective of, well, how can we make this look better? How do yes. we repent of the sins committed against our brothers and sisters? What is that sin? I didn't say the N-word. The sin is prioritizing whiteness. The sin yes. is uh, prioritizing white theology, white thought, uh, putting down other people. Um, and also, I would say this, having a very low view uh, of justice uh, and also misrepresenting uh, the perspectives of minorities, uh, specifically in the area of justice. I think that uh, and, I, and these, these are my, 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 my closing words because I'm thinking of uh, our white brothers and sisters who are listening. I think some of the areas we need to correct is, or, or, or the president or whatever leader who may be, may be tuning in, uh, if you want to move in the right direction when it comes to these institutions, uh, uh, repentance, as a committee said, but also a correct perspective on justice um, and, and social justice engagement, please understand because I, I see time and time again, Fox News and many other platforms are invested in the ignorance of white evangelicals. So I want you to be educated. Social justice for the, for the black Christian is not saying that we're saved through our social justice work. It's saying that because we are saved, we engage in social justice. Don't allow misinformation to guide you because that is the problem up until this point. Don't say things like, why do we need diversity initiatives? Why do we need black scholarships? Why is there even a black church? A black church exists because there was a white church at first. So, you know, have an understanding of history before engaging into these issues, ask questions. And once again, start with the repentance. And if you do decide to bring someone in to help you, pay them and empower them properly and trust their leadership, just like you trust all your other leaders. And before he says it, if if they're if they're bringing you in, make sure you get adequate funding. I've seen that time and time again, where minorities are the least paid uh, mm-hmm. for doing work, and they're calling it diversity, and they tell you you're doing an act for a service to God. I believe that it's, it's kingdom work, but you should be compensated <laughs> for, it, especially if they're compensating everybody else and giving you crumbs. That's it's amazing how 
the people that they want to give the less to have to be kingdom minded, but those who make the most don't. So if we're going to be kingdom minded, make sure we kingdom minded every, for everybody and not just uh -oh. the that you want to give the clubs to. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. And, one more thing. and, your, and your hiring. I'm sorry, Jamar. One more thing. And, and, your, and, your, and your hiring, don't just think of getting minorities present, but also be very strategic in the white people that you hire. Don't hire racist white people. Yes. <laughs> That's part of the problem. That's so like, you're it's going to always balance out. You bring in some more minorities, you hire form a few more, you know, willing. So I don't, 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 don't do that. Be very conscious. <laughs> Investigate who you're hiring. I feel like that should be on a t-shirt. Don't hire racist white people. <laughs> That's a word, y'all. Y'all, man, I have just been filled up to the full with so much wisdom and knowledge from people on this panel. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for pulling yeah. this together. Uh, Allie, thank you so much. We, we need to talk offline because, girl, what you doing? And, oh, my goodness. Uh, and make no mistake, let it, let it, let it not go unnoticed that that black women have been leading this charge, mm -hmm. and it is a sight to behold. Lord, pra yes, praise God. So, thank you so much, sisters, for what you have endured. Because on top of the race issue, you've had a whole bunch of patriarchy and misogyny and misogynoir to deal with. And I'm doing, yes. I'm working on some things, working on some heart issues myself. But being in contact with Folks like you has been so helpful. Um, uh, Lisa, since you gave me last, uh, you know, spot, I'm going to go ahead and plug my book. <laughs> yes, yes. I think a big issue that we're having is that we don't know the truth about race in the American church. And so I'm writing a book called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. I just finished the rough draft of the manuscript. It's in for edits. It will, God willing, be out January 2019. But guess what? You could pre-order it now on mm -hmm. Amazon, The Color of Compromise, and even better, do that, but also sign up for the newsletter. Go to thecolorofcompromise.com. And so we want to thank everybody for joining us. This is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. Share your thoughts with Jude 3. Share your thoughts with The Witness. And thank you all for tuning in. Yes, and use the hashtag Seminary While Black so we can see all your comments. Um, and yeah, share this video as well. Thank you. Have a good night, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching jute 3 project and it'll be right there for you 
So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.